0: Uh, You parents, uh, maybe you can relate to this, you go into your six-year-old daughter's room and you're going to tuck her in for the night and she's surrounded by stuffed animals and cute dolls and this daughter is the sweet, still, calm child. Some of you have one of them. You sit on the side of her bed, you look deeply into her eyes and you say, I am so grateful you're alive. You you, You don't have any idea of how much I love you and it is a gift that I'm allowed to be your dad. And she's staring up at you and says, Daddy, I love you so much. And she puts her little arms around you and gives you a hug. It's just a hallmark moment, and and you leave her room thinking you are pretty much father of the year. You go into the next room, and this child is surrounded by tractors, monster trucks, and toy games. this child is not that sweet, still, calm child. This one only has two gears, full throttle and unconsciousness. (laughs) You've put him in bed for the fourth time. And now you sit on the side of the bed, which is not still, because this kid kid couldn't sit still for eight seconds. And you go into the same speech. I am so grateful that you're alive. Do you have any idea how much I love you? It is a gift that I'm allowed to be your dad. And he's staring up at you and says, Daddy, you have something hanging from your nose. (laughs) Two children, same parents, same gene pool, same family, same house, totally different wiring. And it doesn't take long for a parent to realize if you're gonna fully engage your children, it doesn't take long, you're gonna to have to learn to deal with them in different ways because of their different personalities. And if you try to force them all into relating you the same way, it's just not gonna work. School teachers know this, you can't treat every student the same. Coaches know that some athletes require tongue lashings and others need kid love glove treatment. Salespeople, bosses, therapists, ministers, nurses, doctors, you just have to be able to read the human differences. Do you think God knows this? you think God's aware of these differences in us? Of course. When you read the Bible, God never treats two people the same way. He has Abraham take a walk, Elijah take a nap, Joshua take a lap, Adam take the rap. You like that? <laughs> Groan. He gave Aaron an altar, Miriam a song, Gideon a fleece, Peter a name, Elisha a mantle, he gave Jacob a limp, Esther a crown, Joseph a dream, and Nahum in a bath. Jesus did the same thing. He was stern with the rich man and tender with the adulterer, blistering with the scribes, challenging with the disciples, gentle with the children, and gracious with the thief on the cross because God is a handcrafter, not a mass producer. Now we've just finished this 10-part series on diagnosing your spiritual health, and there are certain basic fundamentals that are important for all of us. We should all thirst for God. That's a basic. We, we should all be concerned about the needs of others. We should all be guided by the Word of God. We should all be aware of God's presence in our life, and all of us need to be part of God's people. All of us should yearn to be with Jesus forever. These are basics. That, that's true for all believers. But we're all different, and the way we experience God in our lives will differ from person to person. The way we thirst for Him, the way we interact with His Word will differ. So one-size-fits-all approach to spiritual growth would be kind of like a doctor who prescribes the same medicine for every ailment, from rickets to pneumonia to headaches. So there's a variety of pathways, a variety of ways God is present in our lives, and all of us have at least one pathway, perhaps a couple, that really comes best and easily for us. We also have one or two that is most unnatural and requires a lot of stretching for us. So today I want to be an encouragement to you because it can be a relief to realize that we are not all the same. These graduates, they're all different. They're all on a different pathway, a different journey. If you're an introvert, it's a relief to know you don't have to relate to God the same way as an extrovert. Now there's several books written on these. This is at all, not at all original with me. And these ideas have been portrayed different ways, but I'm just going to put forth these seven ways in relating to God. Now, to begin with, we have to ask some questions. What brings you life? This will help you understand what pathway you're on. What gets your juices going? Or where's your comfort zone? Maybe it's fishing or hunting or shooting guns or politics or sports or knitting or food or friends or classical music or country music. I'm not sure God can use all kinds of music, but He can use lots of them. The Spirit of God is called by the Apostle Paul the Spirit of Life. And one of the great signs of the Spirit's presence is what gives you life, what connects you to Jesus and to God. And that's probably why there's so many spiritual disciplines, because some of these will give you vitality, and some of them won't. Some will work in your life, and some will work in someone else's life. So you need to ask, where can God really be present with you? How did He make you to relate to Him? Uh, For instance, I tend to be an introvert. And I naturally lean towards solitude because I feel God's presence more intensely apart from the demands of other people. Now, I love people. I love you. But I'll be honest, you wear me out. And you'd be surprised how many ministers actually introverts and they just need to get by themselves in order to talk to God and be with God. Now, here's another important thing. There is a danger with every one of these pathways. For instance, an introvert may feel God's presence in solitude and then have this tendency towards self-absorption, navel-gazing and introspection. So an introvert needs fellowship and needs to be serving others, and, and it's critically important not because he wants to do it necessarily or that feels natural, but it helps him to be balanced in his walk with Christ. So you need a variety of disciplines. You need some that are in your comfort zone, some that work for you, and those are the ones you really should focus on. But you also need some that will stretch you and keep you from falling into some traps. So today I want this emphasis to be on the ones that fit you, and fit your pathway. Because sustainable spiritual growth generally happens when I'm doing what I want to do instead of just what I ought to do. One for me, and I'm not sure I like doing this, but I, it just gives me energy and vitality, is when I'm reading, when I am reading, I am growing. I, I, could just, I could just tell the ups and downs of life. When I'm not reading, I'm not growing. For some of you, reading might be torture and just not helpful at all. So what brings you life? Number two, what's your learning style? God wired us to learn in different ways, and spiritual growth is not restricted to people who like books or people who like school or people who like to read or who like to sing. One man is quite bright and devoted to God, but he hates to read. So approaches to spiritual growth that require a lot of reading are not going to help him as much as something else. For him, finding resources he could listen to might be the key. He's a, he's a learning by listening. Some people learn mainly by doing. If I try to assemble something, I'll read the instructions seven times before I put slot A into slot B. But some of you are more hands-on guys, and you'll try to build a nuclear power plant without looking at the directions. You're just hands-on. For some of you, sitting in church and listening to talk will never be your primary path to growth because an hour of doing would be worth more than an hour of listening. Another person learns best when his or her emotions are engaged and expressed. Uh, He'll be, he he or she'll be more impacted by information that's wrapped up in imagination or art or music. For others, deep emotion actually interferes with learning. So what's your learning style? Huge. What's your signature sin? Every person wrestles wrestles with a unique set of temptations. No one sins exactly like anyone else. Uh, One signature sin might be the need to look better than I really am. And so I try to maintain this image of having the perfect family, the perfect life, and, and I'm big into image management. And it's a pride thing. It's an ego thing. And it is a sin. Or it might be sloth. Maybe that's your signature sin. I know I should do something, but I'm just too lazy. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust, gluttony, jealousy. Maybe a technology addiction or some other addiction. Your signature sin will play into which pathway you're on. My signature sins, probably a couple of them are impatience and worry. So I need disciplines that will help me develop patience and faith. There's other questions you can ask. What's your season of life? What worked when you were in your 20s and had young children? May not work as you get older. What's your culture? What's your church upbringing? What's your family background? All these play into this thing. Oh, another question. Are you Yanni or Laurel? How many of you are Laurel? You are correct. We hear differently. Our brains are different. So, seven pathways. Which one are you on? Number one, intellectual. People on this pathway draw closer to God as they learn more about Him. Ideas are what make this person alive. If you're on this path, you love to study, you love to learn, reading scripture, studying the Bible could be a huge help to you. You're you're one who might like bookstores. When you go to church, you often find yourself marking time or even bored during the musical worship. You're waiting for the sermon. When you're faced with a challenge, you tend to go into analytic, problem-solving mode. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're a mind lover. I think the Apostle Paul was one of this, these. He could re- be writing deep theological stuff and then all of a sudden just start praising God. And if you're like Paul, the road to worship usually runs through your head. And when you come across a new insight that stimulates your thinking, it just energizes you and brings life. Here's the danger. All head, and no heart. Dallas Willard once said, it is very difficult to be right and not hurt anybody with it. Very few people enjoy sitting next to the kid who's a know-it-all has all the answers. One of the remarkable things about Jesus, he did know it all. He was always right, but he never damaged anyone with his mental superiority. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Jesus had the knowledge, but he also had the heart. Relational pathway is another one. When Jesus said, where two or three are gathered by name, there I am in the midst of them, that makes perfect sense to you who are the relationals. Small groups, community experiences are important to you. Uh, You might be one of those people who never meets a stranger. Being alone perhaps drives you crazy. Sometimes you feel guilty when you hear of other people going into these long periods of solitude, being with God in silence. That's just hard for you. Solitude wouldn't be so bad, you think, if I could just have other people go with me. Doesn't work. Maybe Peter was one of these. He came to Jesus with others. He was part of the inner circle with Jesus, with James and John. After the crucifixion, he's the one who gathered the disciples. In fact, his defining moments all took place in the relational context. So people on this pathway need good relationships in order to relate well to God. They're much more likely to practice prayer and worship when they can do it with others. The danger? Superficiality. To get spread so thin and relationally thin, you never really get deep. No one gets past your external self to know and love you and challenge you deeply. Or another danger is you become so dependent on others that you're a spiritual chameleon and you just take on the faith uh, or the thinking of what others are around you. Serving is another pathway. Helping others. You're a good Samaritan. Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. You might find yourself uncomfortable if you can't do something, like setting up chairs, making coffee, help decorating Uh, You feel a sense of God's delight when you are doing. A biblical example might be Dorcas. She isn't mentioned a lot, but in the book of Acts, we're told she was always doing good and involved in helping the poor. Mother Teresa said the primary reason she was involved in serving was not that she was supposed to, but that's what brought her joy. She said she felt the presence of Jesus when she was serving uh, those who needed help. People on this path find that if they're just attending church and have no place to serve, they feel distant. Something's wrong. They need to be plugged into a community where they have meaningful serving opportunities. The danger here is the Martha syndrome. Martha was busy serving when Jesus came to her house, but she neglected to sit at the feet of Jesus and just listen to him. This person thinks they're Christian because they're helping others. They can get so caught up in being God's servant, they forget that they are also God's child. And they can look down on others who are not serving as much as them. Martha did that. She became cranky with her sister who wasn't helping her serve. And Martha just needed to stop and be with Jesus and listen instead of doing, 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 doing. Worship is another pathway. If you're one of these, you resonate with the psalmist who said, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. During worship you sense the reality of God's presence. In worship your heart opens up, you, you tend to come alive, your spirit comes alive. Sometimes you're moved to tears, sometimes moved to joy because God seems close close. You might be a hand waver. I wish we had more hand wavers in our church. I wish I was one of them actually. But praise and adoration are just formative times for you. Intellectuals love the sermon, you love the music. King David seemed to be on this pathway. He wrote psalms and poetry, he played an instrument and sang, he expressed his delight to God through music, he even danced, got in trouble for that. But the danger is emotional addiction, always looking for the next spiritual high. It's all about feeling the Spirit, and sometimes the Spirit is not just a feeling, and sometimes the Spirit works in us more when we're not feeling Him. Another danger is judging others in worship because not everyone's comfortable raising their hands. Some people were raised in churches where you dare not raise a finger or you get in trouble. And not everybody dances. When I was raised, uh, when I was raised in a church, I was raised to, to learn that dancing is a sin. And I've seen some of you dance at weddings and it is a sin. <laughs> I don't know whether it's... I'm going to take a chance with you. How do you make a tissue dance? Put a little boogie in it, yeah. Where do you dance in California? San Francisco. We're not on the humor pathway today. <laughs> Number five, activist, activist. When you're in a group and you hear about an injustice, other people shake their heads, oh, that's awful, and they... But you say, we're going to do something about this. We've got to change it. Challenges don't discourage you. They energize you. At the end of the day, you want to be able to say, I used every ounce of effort and zeal to do something for God. And one example of this would probably be Nehemiah. When he hears that Jerusalem has fallen into disrepair, he's upset and he wants to act. And if you're an activist, you need a cause. Maybe it's unborn children or poverty or human trafficking or adoption. The danger... Is running over people or exploiting them because you get so focused on what you want to accomplish. Activists sometimes have a hard time discerning God's true call from their own strong impulse to action. So you need to create balance by spending some time in solitude and reflection and, and also fellowshipping with others and listening to others. There's the contemplatives, these are people who love large blocks of uninterrupted time alone. It could be when you were a child, your parents actually had to make you go outside and play with your friends. Reflection comes naturally to you. God is more present when distractions and noises are removed. And if you get too busy or spend too much time with too many people, you begin to feel drained. Our society is generally not contemplative-friendly. Our society is more for activists and doers and intellectuals. So what happens when a contemplative, quiet, solitude-type person meets a chatty activist relational type. They're complete opposite. You know what happens? They get married because opposites attract. And then they drive each other crazy. And the contemplator says, you don't have any depth at all. You're so shallow. All you ever want to do is schmooze, schmooze, schmooze. And the relational comes back and says, you don't care about people. All you do is navel gaze all the time. And that is one danger of the contemplated is isolation. So you need to stretch in the area of relationships and become active in serving. It'll be tempting for you to retreat into your inner world, and you need to do some of that. Obviously, that's your main pathway, but you need to get involved in significant relationships as well. And then there's the creation pathway. You connect with God when you're experiencing the world God made. In Greek mythology, there's a character named Antaeus, who could not be defeated in wrestling as long as he was touching Mother Earth. Hercules killed him by holding him midair. And for people on this pathway, there's something life-giving and God-breathed about nature. Being outdoors replenishes, it energizes you. One of the joys of golf is being in nature. By the way, I now golf in the 70s, believe it or not. When it's 70 degrees out, I golf. (laughs) Jesus was a creation type. He would go to the mountains, he would go to the lake, he would withdraw to commune to be with his father. It would make sense that he wanted to be in creation because he created it. The danger is escapism. Golfing on Sunday morning may make you feel better but it's not going to develop you spiritually. You may want to run away to the woods and think you don't need church because I can worship God on my own in nature but you won't or you'll become weird. I mean any one of these pathways can actually be a pathway away from God. The enemy's tricky, and he's deceitful, and he will use these pathways for his purposes when he can. So be aware of these dangers. I want you to look, you know, what, which one of this seems to fit you, and then incorporate practices that would involve these pathways. Use them. You'll probably have to experiment with different disciplines, you know, before you find your fit. Here's another thing. It is important to have some involvement in each of these pathways, No one can ignore their intellectual life, totally, or opt out of worship. You can't think, well, I'm a relation person, so I don't need solitude. No, you do need it. You need all of these, but you need to focus on the ones that really help you experience God. In the church. We need to make room to allow for these different pathways. We need to understand why one person raises their hand in worship and another does not, and understand why some are not as service-oriented or an activist like you may be. I I just want to put it this way. There are no normal Christians. There's no normal rubber-stamp, assembly-line Christian. And a lot of people, I think, perceive church as something designed for somebody other than them. Like an introvert might think, oh man, the church is always talking about small groups and Sunday school and getting involved with people and all that. And they feel disenfranchised because they're introverts. There's actually a book written for for you, introverts in the church and how you can fit. On the other hand, an extrovert, you know, relational person might be convinced that all books on spiritual formation were written by introspective bookish types and it makes extroverts feel superficial and guilty. If you don't recognize these differences... You'll be tempted toward either judgment or envy with other people. Back to the extrovert-introvert married couple. She's an activist, people magnet. He's a stoic introvert. He tends to judge her as being superficial because she has low capacity for solitude. She tends to judge him as unloving because his desire to be with other people only surfaces once a year or so. Both are judgmental, judging each other. But then the flip side They both tend to feel a little bit of guilt on their own because they know they have some deficiencies. He knows he's not very people-oriented and maybe even envies that in her. She knows he's not as deep as he is and perhaps envies that. fact is, God created you in a unique way and he's close to every one of us. And it'll just help to understand how he made you and how you relate, and how best you can be more aware of his presence in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the variety in this room, and for the fact that in this room, there is room for variety. Thank you for the different pathways that you've provided, and the different ways that you relate to our various personalities. Thank you for Jesus, who lived and walked each one of these pathways to perfection. And he sets the example for all of us. Lord, keep us wise to the dangers, to the traps that these pathways can put before us. We just ask for you to guide, to lead us, and most of all, to live in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.